ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Wednesday the 7th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, a mother in the US convicted of involuntary manslaughter for giving a firearm to her son who went on to carry out a school shooting. And rental sting, undercover inspectors sent into properties in Victoria to crack down on real estate rip-offs. We saw issues with mould, real basic issues like no window coverings and curtains. And we saw over a quarter of properties with maintenance issues, and some of them really serious, like broken glass, broken light fittings, things that would make a home unsafe or unlivable. A scathing report into closing the gap policies has found that without significant change, efforts to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders will fail. The Productivity Commission says state and federal governments must relinquish power to Indigenous organisations to get back on track. In July last year, just a quarter of the targets were likely to be met and others were going backwards, Angus Randall reports. It's a damning assessment that says more than 15 years on from the launch of the Closing the Gap strategy, governments are still failing the country's First Nations people. Productivity Commissioner Romilly Mokak is a Juggan man and a member of the Yaru people. It's clear that governments have, have not fulfilled their commitments under the agreement. Much of what we're saying at the heart of this report is about the inability or the disinterest in in governments actually relinquishing power and control. Sharing power is really the central, uh, central story here in our review of this national agreement on closing the gap. State, territory and federal governments agreed to closing the gap targets in 2007 and the targets were redrawn in 2020. They include improving life expectancy for Indigenous Australians and creating better outcomes in education, health, employment and housing. Today, the Productivity Commission released its latest report on the strategy. It's found some serious shortfalls and is urging governments to trust communities to find their own solutions. The embedded powerlessness in relationships with governments are long-standing and well-known. What we're saying here is that the agreement, in fact, needs to be amended to actually uh, recognise that power needs to be shared. Government must change the way in which they work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is really at the heart of it. It's changing the mindset, the systems, the way in which governments work and the instruments, the levers that they have in order to do that. The Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, says she'll consider the findings in consultation with Indigenous organisations and state and territory governments. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says his government has more work to do. We need to do more and the government acknowledges that. Uh, We're doing work, particularly at the moment, across a range of issues. We're talking about how do you build housing in remote Australia? How do you increase uh, the use of justice reinvestment? How do you create employment through Indigenous Rangers programs? How do you convert the CDP, what effectively is a work for the Dole program, into real jobs with real skills, creating real opportunity? for First Nations people. In Victoria, the First Peoples Assembly represents the state's Indigenous population as they negotiate treaty. 
Co-chair and Gundich Mara man Ruben Berg says governments need to give Indigenous groups the power and funding to make decisions that can improve their lives. So decisions around how funds are allocated to First Peoples issues, that can be decided by First Peoples ourselves. We look at a variety of appointments that the government makes around key decision makers to do with our communities. Those appointments should be made by our communities. It's all about at every step of the way ensuring that First Peoples are in the driver's seat. Not politicians deciding they know what's best, but First Peoples experts in their areas being the ones empowered to make decisions at local areas to get those better outcomes. The Productivity Commission wants to see an independent mechanism to ensure governments embed closing the gap targets in their decision making. The Coalition of Peaks represents more than 80 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community controlled organisations. Deputy Lead Convener Scott Wilson says governments will keep missing targets without that extra accountability. The Productivity Commission was quite clear in its major recommendation that there needs to be an independent mechanism uh, outside of government that can hold government, not just the federal government but also in each of the jurisdictions to account because if basically if they don't sort of stick to what they've agreed to in the national agreement there's really not nothing that we as a coalition of the peaks or aboriginal people can do to hold government account data on the closing the gap targets is expected to be released by the federal government next week that's angus randall reporting there dodgy training colleges will face fines of close to a million dollars under laws proposed in federal parliament today the crackdown would also deregister colleges which fail to provide any courses in a year Unions and experts say it will boost a sector that has been undercut by shonks for decades. And it's all part of the federal government's broader plan to halve migration numbers in the next two years. Rachel Hayter reports. In his late 20s, David Loring enrolled in six months of night school to finesse his graphic design skills. But he, his colleagues and the teacher did not get what they signed up for. We were very confused that we weren't being taught anything. I think he was a bit confused that we weren't just getting on with the work and that whoever had positioned this had just clearly not filled in the details between us. The course ended up costing far more than David expected. In retrospect, you look at it and you go, did I just get completely hoodwinked by paying a third party to do a TAFE course. And on top of all that, the heat in the classroom was intolerable. The air conditioning never worked and in the height of summer when you're in a loft building, that became an almost physical uh, impossibility. It's dodgy schools like David's in the federal government sites. This sector is undermined and its reputation is besmirched by dodgy providers and we need to see the end of them. Minister for Skills and Training Brendan O'Connor says this country must urgently lift its vocational education and training standards to equip workers with the skills they need in a rapidly changing economy. Pretty much half the skills that supply our labour market come from the vet sector. Under the proposed laws, fraudulent colleges would face fines of close to a million dollars. And so-called ghost colleges who fail to provide any courses for a year would be deregistered. The Electrical Trades Union's Michael Wright says it's a relief for genuine trading providers getting undercut by the shonks. That's really what we've seen in VET over the last 30 years is because of the competitive model that they've introduced, the privatised model, that it's been a race to the bottom in terms of standards. This flips that round. This means that we're back to competing on quality instead of who can who can give someone a piece of paper for the cheapest. Trent Wiltshire is the Deputy Program Director in Economic Policy at the Grattan Institute. 
He explains how these dodgy colleges lure students to Australia from overseas. This is often done with agents that try and recruit students from overseas. So they might suggest that a certain institution offers a fantastic, say, business or accounting course in the vet sector with the prospect of being able to then go on to study at university. But the reality is that the provider only offers very limited education, has poor quality facilities, and the student doesn't realise that until they arrive in Australia and they're paying large fees for this uh, this education. Trent Wiltshire says that undermines trust in the visa system and fuels a migration phenomenon the government has dubbed permanent temporariness. There's going to be potentially a growing number of people here on student visas, on temporary visas, jumping between temporary visas with little prospect of being able to stay here permanently because there are few spots being offered each year in our permanent intake, roughly 190,000 know, for this year. But there are over one and a half million people here on temporary visa holders, many of which uh, want to stay permanently. A drop in the number of new international students would help the federal government meet its goal of halving net overseas migration from half a million to 250,000 by 2025-26. That's Rachel Hayter reporting. Right around Australia, this is The World Today. A mother in the US state of Michigan has been convicted of involuntary manslaughter after her 15-year-old son shot and killed four classmates at a high school near Detroit. The jury found that Jennifer Crumbly and her husband gave their son Ethan a firearm for Christmas and ignored warning signs that he was violent. Gun safety advocates say the verdict is a wake-up call to parents who fail to secure weapons and prevent their children from harming others. Josh Horwitz is co-director of the Johns Hopkins Centre for Gun Violence Solutions. I think it's significant. I think it obviously is significant for the people in Michigan who are going through this horrible situation. But I do think it's also significant for parental responsibility when it comes to gun ownership. And so I do think it creates the legal framework for uh, accountability regime. And in what way? What does that mean in the home, in the way that parents are caring for their kids, in the way that parents are securing firearms? What does it mean in a practical sense? I think there's so much more to be fleshed out over time. But what it does is allow courts and juries to look at involuntary manslaughter as a way to hold parents accountable who are grossly negligent. Clearly, in this case, where the parents ignored the the child's health issues, purchased a firearm, gave him a firearm, and then kept that firearm unsecured and loaded. That's where obviously there's a that 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 fact situation is clearly grossly negligent. Other jurors will, juries will have to grapple with other situations till it's still premature to say where those lines are going to be drawn. Again, in America, we have widespread gun ownership, so it's not just having a gun in the home. It's probably going to be something more than that. Is there any sense that public sentiment is shifting on this issue of school shootings to push harder for action, particularly at a time when the National Rifle Association is going through legal turmoil of its own? Is it a moment for change right now? Well, yeah, it's been a moment of change for a while. Um, The American public squarely wants stronger gun laws and more resources spent on school safety and community violence prevention. That's very clear. I think, and you're seeing that actually in many states, what often is the problem is that people look at Congress and say, well, Congress, you know, is can't, you know, is not acting on this. Therefore, is there momentum? 
so I think what you have to look is what's going on in the states. And at the state level, you're seeing a lot of action to prevent gun violence. And so I think the American people are demanding action. I think you're starting to see that at the state level. It just hasn't it hasn't fully vested itself at the federal level. Last year, two years ago, we were able to get the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is a great first step. But then, then we saw the co- Congress change and the Republicans take over the House. It's been much, much more difficult since that happened to get any type of national action. Josh, what do you think about the determination and the courage of parents who have lost children in these shootings and then step up and play such a central role in the activism to turn things around? I'm in complete awe of parents who have lost children and go on to, to advocate for better gun laws or more money for community safety. And, you know, every parent deals with things differently. Some parents, and rightly so, don't want to be in the public. Um, And of course, we respect them, that choice. But for the parents who are out there every day fighting, and one of the reasons I've stayed in my career for over 30 years is because if, if they can go out there and do that, then I've got to be right next to them. That's Josh Horwitz there, co-director of the Johns Hopkins Centre for Gun Violence Solutions. The Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea is set to make history tomorrow when he becomes the first Pacific Island leader to address a joint sitting of Australia's parliament. But James Marape's moment comes amid major domestic political challenges to his rule and only weeks after at least 15 people were killed in riots in Port Moresby. Australia is eager to build on a bilateral security agreement signed two months ago as China continues to court PNG. Paul Barker is director of the Institute of National Affairs in PNG. He says James Marape is trying to reassert his authority. He's under considerable pressure. It was certainly uh, a demonstration that uh, a lot of the public is unhappy, but there was a level of political opportunism that was uh, associated with it. But he's certainly feeling very uh, concerned at the moment, but he is busily trying to demonstrate that he has his numbers nevertheless. And Paul, I understand that in PNG, the Prime Minister is protected from no confidence votes in the first 18 months, but that that time is about to run out in the next week for for James Marape. Is that correct? Yes. uh, Nearer the time of independence, it it was a shorter period. They tried to extend it to cover the entire five-year term, but that was knocked back constitutionally. So you just have this 18-month protection that, that is in place and invariably the opposition, but also members within the government sometimes uh, look at the point at the 18-month period as an opportunity to to oust the government and to either gain office or potentially to gain um, better positions than perhaps they have at the moment in the back benches or junior ministries uh, where they're seeking bigger ministries. So yes, this is an unstable period. In the last 12 months before the next election, they also have a uh, a security, the government of the day. So whoever wins, if they table a vote now, whoever wins then gets effectively another 18-month um, period of, uh, of security. So this is a, a period of potential political vulnerability for the Prime Minister, which is about to begin. Very much so. There are members within his own uh, government team who've demonstrated their dissatisfaction to try and shore up his numbers. He's been uh, issuing additional additional ministries and reshuffling. That has also resulted in dissatisfaction amongst some of his team who feel they've been um, demoted 
you know, effectively areas of influence and control. So a lot is going on at the moment. How's the economy going in PNG at the moment? The economy slowly picked up after the pandemic. This year is meant to be a good year with about a 5% growth rate expected to be boosted by the uh, recommencement of the Porgara mine, but also by the potential start of some of the some further major resource projects. But clearly what happened in January creates a lot of extra instability. We still have major shortage of foreign exchange, which uh, undermine business and investor confidence. And we're not so sure about those major resource projects kicking off as per schedule. They do seem to be slipping back a bit. It should be a positive time, but clearly when you see riots happening on the streets, that doesn't encourage uh, either investors or, for example, uh, tourists to come visit. And although PNG has a small tourism industry, it is a land which should have immense economic opportunities that would generate quite a lot of jobs. That's a Paul Barker there, Director of the Institute of National Affairs in PNG. And just a warning, the following story contains discussions of self-harm which may be distressing to some listeners. Today marks five years since the WA coroner released a particularly grim document, the findings of an inquest into the suicides of 13 children and young people. All were Aboriginal and all lived in the remote Kimberley region. The deaths included a 10-year-old girl who took her own life, an event that triggered angst across the country and led to promises of change to keep children safe. So, five years on, has anything changed? Reporter Erin Park filed this report. It's a hot morning at a bush cemetery and Aboriginal elders are gathered around a grave. The sound of wailing fills the air as a coffin is lowered into the dirt. It holds the body of a young woman who took her own life in the backyard of a house just metres away from her relatives inside. It's an all-too-familiar ritual in the Kimberley, which has one of the highest rates of suicide in the world. We're deeply distressed and concerned about the ongoing impact of self-harm and suicide on our young people. These are our kids, you know, it's our, they're our future. Jenny Bedford is one of the local Aboriginal community leaders who's been liaising with government in its efforts to address the issue. Five years ago, the WA coroner released the findings of a sweeping investigation into the deaths of 13 young people, among them five children aged 10 to 13. Coroner Ros Fogliani described the deaths as profoundly tragic and shaped by the crushing effects of intergenerational trauma and poverty. Most of those who died had been exposed to violence and alcohol abuse in childhood and six were believed to have been sexually abused. At the time, the WA government promised a comprehensive response to the coroner's recommendations, including annual updates on their implementation. It has failed to do this. Nothing has been published since 2021, but a statement from the office of Premier Roger Cook says most of the recommendations have been completed or well progressed. But Jenny Bedford, who co-chairs a regional Aboriginal governance group, says the most important commitment, a partnership agreement to involve the local community in addressing youth issues, has not been delivered. We've been having these discussions around a partnership agreement with government for nearly two years now and there's been significant delays in responses from government. So what does that tell us? It tells us that it's business as usual and that perhaps there's not that appetite. She says it's the kind of localised model that in the wake of the Voice to Parliament referendum could deliver long-term structural change to how government interacts with Aboriginal communities. 
we're very optimistic that we can still land this partnership agreement, but it's going to take a significant shift from government side. And what's at stake is the lives of our young people. National data shows the number of children taking their own lives has increased in recent years. The WA Children's Commissioner, Jacqueline McGowan-Jones, who herself has Indigenous heritage, says children in remote areas can end up out of sight, out of mind. Our kids have got trauma, mental health issues, and we need to be responsive and find the right programs and supports for kids to access. Our kids don't ring Lifeline. They don't ring Kids Helpline, or if they do, they might be on hold for a very long period of time. Do you think things are better now than they were five years ago? Oh, look, I think they're better than they were two years ago. I think we do make incremental steps. Nonetheless, as the problem increases, so does the investment need to increase. No one wants to bury their child. That is not the natural order. That's the WA Children's Commissioner Jacqueline McGowan-Jones ending Erin Park's report. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Finally today, if you've been looking for a house to rent, you'll know that the market continues to tighten. But in Victoria, undercover agents are being sent in to open inspections in an effort to crack down on real estate rip-offs. They've found a range of problems from poor property maintenance to health and safety failures. Advocates are calling on landlords and the real estate industry to lift their game. Jacqueline Breen reports. There weren't any fake moustache disguises involved in the operation, according to Consumer Policy Research Centre CEO Erin Turner. They weren't required, but I fully support them. But posing as prospective tenants searching for a new rental, the undercover mystery shoppers were sent to 100 open inspections advertised in Wyndham Vale in Melbourne's Outer West and in Bendigo. So we sent our undercover renters out with a checklist based on what the law says. And that these are really basic minimum standards for properties. That there's a here in the living room, that there's no visible structural mould. Um, and we did find that there's a lot of properties that are affordable that do meet the minimum standards, but we saw issues with 9% of properties with mould, 10% with real basic issues like no window coverings and curtains. And we saw over a quarter of properties with maintenance issues, and some of them really serious, like broken glass, broken light fittings. They found a third of properties failed to meet minimum standards. And the undercover inspectors found that the worst examples were in the relatively more affordable listings. The one that really shocked me was a home that didn't even have a heater. It had an air conditioning unit that was duct taped into a piece of wood in a window. We also saw really prominent strong mould. In some cases, the wall peeling off, um, not just the paint, but actual the structure itself. These are properties that should not be listed for rent, but they were being advertised in a really tight rental market. Erin Turner says Victoria's rental laws are considered stronger than other jurisdictions and believes that providing clearer information about minimum standards would address some of the issues uncovered. But she says stronger protections are needed. There's some room to make the laws stronger. Uh, as a great example, the requirement for heating says there has to be a heater in the living room um, and it has to meet a minimum energy efficiency. But that doesn't mean you can heat or cool your home. We were looking at properties with four bedrooms that had a small gas heater in their living room, nothing else. 
that that's not enough to help someone through the depths of a Melbourne winter. Jennifer Beveridge is head of the Victorian Tenants Union. So what we have here in Victoria is that renters, particularly in some of those more affordable, low-cost properties, just by nature of circumstance, are having to accept substandard homes. She says it's encouraging that large parts of the market are meeting the minimum standards introduced in Victoria, and that's evidence that other jurisdictions can and should follow its lead. But there's more work to do to stamp out dodgy operators. We would like to see some more enforcement of these minimum standards. At the moment, we're relying on the market to comply with these standards. New figures out today confirm to renters what they already know. The market is incredibly tight and not getting better. In January, the national vacancy rate contracted again to 1.9%. It's the second lowest rate on record for the combined capitals, according to Anne Flaherty from real estate researchers PropTrack. The speed at which new housing is being developed has started to slow down and that means that we're seeing a lot of pressure in the housing market. The situation is worst in Sydney where the median rental price of $900 is up 20% on the year before. The report notes January is something of an outlier and generally an especially tight time for the market when more tenants are looking to move. That's Jacqueline Breen reporting. That's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. For hundreds of years, the royal family's health woes have been tightly guarded secrets. But under King Charles, things are changing. He's announced to the world he has cancer. So now he's gone public, does it change how we perceive the monarchy? Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.